0: The Writer's Toolkit is published by Nick Hearn Books. Order direct from the publisher and get 20% off this and other great titles. Visit nickhernbooks.co.uk. Talking practice and process with inspiring playwrights and screenwriters. This is the Writer's Toolkit podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Writer's Toolkit podcast, the show that basically provides a legitimate excuse for me to stalk my favourite writers in the name of research and mine them for information in the name of community. Coming up... In this episode, I do no such thing with Douglas Lyons, the playwright behind Broadway's newest comedy, Chicken and Biscuits, and notably one of seven writers whose names have just been etched in the history books of American theatre. As marquees the length of Broadway are illuminated once again this fall after what felt like an eternal intermission, The Great White Way finally looks a little less white. Among the slate of shows opening are seven new plays, Nothing remarkable there, except for the fact that all of them were written by black playwrights. Working hard to bring true equality to Broadway and ensure this is not merely a moment of tokenism, Douglas is the founder of the Next Wave Initiative, the developmental branch of the director's company, committed to amplifying black voices in American theatre.
2: What Jonathan Larson did with Rent, he was on the lookout for new talent and birthed Daphne Ruben vega and Tay Diggs and Adam Pascal. He started those careers with his work. And so I'm hoping that theatre gets back to a place where it aims to do that and allow the new in instead of regurgitating the old. And I feel like if I have any platform, I'm going to continue to look for the unicorns, you know, to, to take people who are phenomenal and put them in places where they can thrive.
0: The Writer's Toolkit Podcast with Paul Kalbergi.
1: Douglas Lyons personifies the term multi-hyphenate. He's an actor, director, composer, lyricist and teacher. Certainly no stranger to the Broadway stage, Douglas was part of the original cast of Beautiful, the Carol King musical, as well as The Book of Mormon, which he performed on Broadway and as part of the first national tour. Other tours include Rent and Dreamgirls, as well as appearing in regional productions at theatres including Yale Rep and Seattle's Fifth Avenue Theatre. As a writer, he's one half of the incredible songwriting duo Lions and Pachar with writing partner Ethan D. Pakchar. Together, they're responsible for the incredible musical Bo, a big-hearted, folksy masterpiece which enjoyed a workshop performance at Lincoln Center's Broadway Songbook Series and a world premiere production at the Adirondack Theatre Festival. Their show Five Points is currently in development with Hamilton's Andy Blankenbuehler. Five Points tells the story of Willie Lane, a young African-American performer, and John Diamond, an Irish former jig champion who risk everything for their chance to be part of the American dream douglas has also written for younger audiences too he's the conceiver lyricist and co-composer of the off-broadway alliance winning polka dots the cool kids musical which continues to be staged globally he's also writing for apple tv's fraggle rock reboot and not forgetting chicken and biscuits of course which marks douglas's broadway debut as a playwright Douglas, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for having me. It's so great to sit down for this virtual coffee with you and find out Mm -hmm. more about what you're working on. I've got so many questions. Well, I'm glad that you found me. This is super cool. And we're going to talk properly about all your projects, Chicken and Biscuits, of course. But let's just acknowledge Mm -hmm. you're a playwright with a play rehearsing ahead of a Broadway opening. Has that sunk in yet for you?
2: Honestly, I've had really bad anxiety the past 48 hours because of it. It's a beautiful thing to rehearse it and to see it bloom and grow. But then the reality of waking up and doing press, like I have like Four or five press things in the next week. You know, it's more than just the show right. itself. You can't predict how it will be received, especially yeah. during this yeah. difficult time. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm simultaneously excited and also a wreck. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. I think it's got to be there. Right. If you weren't feeling those feels, like, you know, y- you've got to go through that whole journey of emotions as well. Yeah. Or you're not human. Right. Exactly. Well, you are living every one of my playwriting dreams right now. So it's just fantastic to kind of get some more insight into that and what it feels like and that journey to, to Broadway for you. Yeah. Of course, you're no stranger to a Broadway spotlight as an actor, but was writing always there in the background for you? Writing was
2: healing. Um, I started writing music in twenty. 20- Twelve twenty thirteen, after a tough breakup, and I met my main writing partner Ethan D. Pachar on the Book of Mormon first national tour. And writing was healing at the time, and it, it was a way to get out things that I could not put to text. But right. being a singer, you know, it really allowed me to let some things go. I actually had a song on our first album called "Let Go." Mm. Yeah, initially it was an exercise of healing, and then it turned into something more curious and stable right. Right. and technical. And I
1: became very passionate about it. Yeah, that, that's fantastic. Now, talk to me about the logistics of your physical kind of writing space. Like, you know, what does your writing space look like at home? All that kind of stuff.
2: I'm sitting at my writing desk right now, which is adjacent to my bed, and that's where I do the majority of my writing. I rarely write in bed or out in the living room. I have a candle over here. I usually have a candle burning. Got to set yeah. the mood, right? Got to set that. the mood. Yeah, just me, me and my computer. We're yeah. really setting the mood. Um, but yeah, it's usually me at my writing desk with a glass of water and my computer. And I try to put my phone not too close to me because I will look at it every other second, which is yeah. horrible. Oh, the distractions um, are but, real, hey. Oh my goodness. I, oh my goodness. Social media is yeah. a bittersweet luxury that we have. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, I don't. I don't really have a ritual. It's just sort of like, Sometimes I know I need to write and I'm like, give yeah. yourself an hour. And if that hour becomes too great, if it becomes 50 minutes, cool. But I yeah. try not to pressure myself. I was actually working through a block on this new play, mm-hmm. Invisible. I'm working through and I broke through it, but it was tough. It was there yeah. was a good like week and a half. Where I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. Why am I writing this play? I don't I knew how it was going to end, but I couldn't figure out sort of what I call the 11
1: o'clock moment yeah. in the play the yeah. big event. Um, So in those moments of kind of fleeting inspiration, when you need to kind of, you know, you sit down and and, then, you know, the words aren't flowing for whatever reason, how do you write around that? Where do you like to, do you kind of seek out inspiration from things that inspire you? Or do you get out and go for a walk? Do you go and write in a different environment? What breaks through that kind of barrier for you, that writing roadblock? I stop writing. I just don't do it.
2: Like, I have to feel it. You know, I feel like it's a spirit. Writing is a spirit and a rhythm like i have to be in the right headspace as well i can't just be like okay you're writing today like if i'm not feeling it it's yeah. not going to come on the page yeah, it's not going to yeah. flow out of me i have to carve out the time mm. i'll maybe write a little bit but then if it's too late like i, I give myself office hours so i will not write okay. very late anymore so i try to write okay. when i wake up in the morning so invisible okay. this new play i just finished i would work on you know from 9 to 12 to 1 to 2 yeah, right yeah. and then it was like 9 to 4 and I got through it, but I don't like to write at night. I used to like to write at night before the pandemic.
1: So when you sit down to write, every play starts with a writer and a blank page. What does that process look like for you?
2: I usually have an an idea for a conflict Mm. of some sort. And so I never come from like the characters first. Mm. I always come from like the conflict and right. that's my entry point into the story.
1: Okay. So what would you say are some of your main sources of inspiration?
2: I am heavily influenced from podcasts and YouTube interviews, actual real life stories. Those are things that really create magical worlds for me. And I like recreating things that I fall upon in research and everyday life and yep. making it theatrical. That's sort okay. of my okay. style.
1: Mm. And do I spy a wall of post-it notes behind you? Do you like to put things up and be kind of physical and tangible things you can move around?
2: Yeah. So that's my dream wall. It's a chalk wall for those that are listening. It's blue. There's white chalk on it. And during COVID, I was working on so many various things that I had to write them down. So when I spoke with my rep, I could go through the list and not miss things. Um, Because that's all I was doing during the pandemic was like writing and writing and writing and writing. Mm. It healed me. It kept me alive. It kept me with purpose. It gave me something to wake up to every morning. Um, and the posted notes and the index cards are the first 10 episodes of a TV show that I am developing that actually got picked up for development. Um, and so right now there's only three episodes broken the first two and the last. Um, but like, again, knowing nowhere, knowing where I want to get is a really, fascinating thing for the character so I'm a visual person I'm Mm -hmm. a dreamer and I manifest things so I put that on my board actually probably almost a year ago when the show kept getting no's at different places I got so many rejections and passes on it and then there was one studio that was like oh we see what you're trying to do let's try to work on this
1: Okay, let's talk about your very exciting project. After living in Texas for a few years, I am definitely missing my Southern comfort food. Uh, It's almost Mm brunch time here, so I think we can dive into some chicken and biscuits now, right? We can. Can you talk a little about the genesis of the play and kind of when the idea first came about for you?
2: It was originally going to be about Kenny and Logan, uh, the queer couple within the play, and Kenny's mother and father, who surprisingly popped up at their apartment unannounced. And it was the first time that Logan, Kenny's very Jewish and anxious boyfriend, would meet his very Christian black mother. That was right. the original concept. And then um after some family discoveries and just living a little bit more life, I found that there was more to find in the family, that I could expand the family, and that right. there would be an event, this okay. funeral. This um, catalyst to kind of... Yeah, something that brings everybody together, right? Weddings, funerals, yeah. and uh just life experience and some personalities that I was raised with and some funerals that I've been to. It felt like a p- supreme opportunity for comedy. Yeah. yeah. Um, growing up in the Black church, there's a lot of spiritual amazingness and respect and tradition and culture, mm. but there's also mm. a lot of foolishness and laughter and heart yep. and yep. what a better way to make a play than to put all that in the batter and yeah. to take these really juicy individuals who have this thing in common bearing their sure. grandfather or their father and then clashing. Um, mm. and loving and laughing and judging and restoring and healing yeah. together
1: so once you were in the throes of writing chicken and biscuits were family members suddenly very cagey around you know don't talk to douglas it'll end up in a play <laughs>
2: <laughs> the first time my parents saw the play was the second reading and afterwards my father said that's us you wrote us that's it that's it <laughs> uh referring to the the culture and um I don't think I knew what I was writing. I just knew that I wanted it to be fun. Mm. Like I'm tired of seeing specifically Black women in the American theater be oppressed and have to endure so much to have a role. And that they're rarely allowed to just breathe and laugh and cry openly and heal. Like those are not things afforded to Black women. Yeah. And after seeing a lot of recent work, I was like, can we flip the script? Can we come up with something that allows... The Black women that I grew up with to be seen on stage, their beauty and their fashion and their hair and their attitude and their love. What does that look like? And I think that's what the play was a a letter to is how can I encapsulate that love and Mm. put it on stage alongside these other images that we often see with Black people? Yeah,
1: definitely. So. Can you talk us through, uh, obviously, you know, getting a play on Broadway is, you know, the, the dream of many a writer. Can you just talk us through the development stages from kind of page to stage and what that looked like for Chicken and Biscuits?
2: I was writing Chicken and Biscuits while I was on Broadway in Beautiful the Carol King musical backstage. I had a residency at the director's company where I was an actor a decade ago. Mm -hmm. And I started working on Beau. That was my first thing. And then a year later, I would start working on Chicken and Biscuits. And as a playwright, I tend to work five to 10 pages at a time. So the first Chicken and Biscuits table read, there's a picture of it. There was like five people around the table. And I heard it and they were like, yeah, there's something here. This is funny. And then it was 20 pages and there were seven people around the table. And that's how I built it. Um, November of 2018 was our first reading and Lilius White, my friend, who's the amazing Tony Award winning superstar played the lead and we learned a lot from that. Um, and funny story, that reading went very well and friends came and laughed and. I called my agent and I said, hey, so like, where are we sending this play out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the response was so great. He said, nowhere. We're not sending it anywhere. And I was like, what? He's like, <laughs> it's not ready yet. And I was like, what do you mean? The reaction He was like, yes. But when I saw the play, I didn't know who I was up against. I didn't know the antagonist. Right. I didn't know the conflict okay, of the play okay. beyond all the personalities at the funeral. And I was like, yeah. oh, and that hurt my feelings initially, but he was right. Mm -hmm. And that Mm -hmm. note helped to shift Benita, the central character, as sort of the ping pong against everyone's paddle. And center her as the lead of the play, who had to change. We had to watch her change.
1: Okay, okay. And
2: I made that rewrite. And the second reading, there were five readings, so I get them confused. But there was one in Brooklyn, one with the Queen's Theater. I think there might have been two with the Queen's Theater. But I had like four readings within less than a year's time with the same director, Jalen Livingston. And we just tightened and kept the laughs that we had and built new ones. Our final reading was with the Queens Theater and the director's company in New York City. And there were some producers that had come on board to help. And the response was so beautiful. There were Asian-Americans, African-Americans. There was a group of these three Jewish middle-aged women who all loved the play. And they wanted to see a spinoff where we met Logan's family at the wedding, right? Everyone was invested in a very strange and beautiful way. And I was like, oh, this is what theater can do. It can bring mm-hmm. people together. And so after that reading, we got into right. talks with right. Terrence Sacramone, my friend, my dear friend, and the executive director at the Queens Theater about a potential bow. Right. Um, and that bow would manifest in March of 2020, where uh, we opened on March 6th. Great time to open any show. Yeah, it was just <laughs> wonderful. But luckily we opened and got yeah. one really nice review. Okay. And the word had gotten out and the final performance had sold out. So they were adding another one. Like things were starting to buzz. And then uh, less than a week later, everything shut down.
1: Gosh. So, so you got a week of performances in
2: there? Yeah, they got a week of previews and then a week of performances. Yeah.
1: Okay. Okay.
2: And uh, it was it was tough But part of me at that time, because I didn't know what was going on outside, Mm. was just grateful that we had opened. Yeah. You had it on its feet, right? Yeah. And that I got to see it open. That I was like, oh, it it does a thing. People react. People feel connected to the play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good feeling. You know, some plays were in rehearsal or, you know, the night before they were going to open Six on Broadway. You know, they were Mm. too open that night. So I was just grateful that we got that opening night. But from there, I had the previous year... Slid into the DMs of this Broadway producer okay. because he followed me on Instagram. And I think this is very important for people to know that like our social media can be used however you want to use it. But I tend to use it for promotion of career, mm. not necessarily of uh, like myself and my body and my looks, but like my work, because it's just a great resource and network yeah. to get your work out there to people who can discover you. Definitely. And So last year um, he followed me on Instagram. And I followed him back and saw that he was a lead producer on Town. I was like, oh, bet. Let's mm-hmm. talk. Yeah. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> I sent him a message and I was like, I have some shows that I think you should, you know, take a look at. And it took some time. But during the pandemic, I got a message from him saying, right. hey, I finally read your stuff and we should talk. Wow. And like May, June during the pandemic okay. and spoke for a whole year. Yeah. Um. I started this organization called the Next Wave Initiative, which is a scholarship program for future Black artists, investing mm. in them very early and celebrating them before they have arrived yeah. in the big business. And so as a fundraiser for that, we had another reading of it virtually, um, okay. with E59 and the director's company, and that went really well. Yeah. And yeah. that was the first time people around the world could see it, right? Um, right. and then shortly thereafter, you know, there were some murmurs of, Circle in the Square maybe being opening because American Buffalo had shifted its dates and blah, 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 blah. And then in April of last year, I found myself walking through Circle in the Square, seeing if our set could, you know, fit, but it oh all felt oh so cloudy. Wait. Last, no, this year, 2021. See, we've been in the pandemic so long.
1: Having that that notion though, must have just been like in the middle of the darkest time for so many people. Was that just like something to hold on to? No,
2: I didn't want to hold on to it because our business is so fickle. And so the moment you get really excited about something, it can always be taken away. Mm -hmm. I learned that in this business as well. Like I've had friends, you know, be... In the pits of uh, Broadway shows, you know, they were about to originate their first yeah. chair and then a producer drop out and the entire thing is canceled. So I, I yeah. allowed myself to be in the moment, but not to be too excited about the future because okay. it's unknown okay. and Very there's wise. just no way for you to predict. Yeah. So... I didn't get too excited. I was just like, cool, we're in the theater. This is awesome. And then it was like mid-May, early June, privately, we knew that we had the house. But wow. even that, it just didn't feel- Very recently then. Oh, this all happened in the past like six months. That's amazing. We got literally, it was like, so we're doing this. Casting director, audition, breakdown. That's crazy. Uh Designers. And I was flying to LA- on a trip that i had already planned for vacation air quotes and instead of being on vacation i was in the hotel room watching self tapes and watching auditions wow. um and that was like mid june and then at the end of june the announcement june 24th they announced that it was happening that's amazing it's so it's going to be so crazy like uh, what's so funny at queens we were in a black box right that could house maybe 85 people and so to now be in a theater of 700 mm. i can't even I'm going to be a wreck when I walk oh, to that theater the first
1: time. Uh, Douglas, I was, uh I can't even imagine, like, you, you talk about going to view the theater. I was, I was Googling, you know, Circle in the square last night and thinking, oh my gosh, that is a barn. That yes. is a house. Like, a wreck. and moving from your black box, were you kind of, were you end on in the black box because you, you're staging it Thrust in circle in the square or is it in the round it's in the round it's in the round which is an- another adjustment for the actors too how does it change the show as well
2: yeah it's it's ideally it, but the thing it's it's never been in proscenium because even in the black box it was a weird like diamond shape okay so the audience was on either side right it wasn't proscenium okay. so we're used to seeing it You know, in a very odd staging. But I think given the nature of the bones of the play, Mm. as long as the love is incorporated in the storytelling, it's going to land. It could be in a line. Yeah. Okay, they could be in a chorus line and people could be all around them. But if they really (laughs) commit to the story, it's going to land.
1: Am I right in thinking three of the original cast from the Queen's Theatre Production were able to join you on Broadway and make their debuts? Four of the original cast um one who played bonita
2: is now the standby swing for the three lead women um but okay. three of the on stage actresses in addition will be reprising their roles on broadway um and wow. adam honore our lighting designer is making his broadway debut there are 25 plus broadway debuts
1: oh between gosh.
2: cast creative um designer stage management all, all different departments. Wow.
1: And making history before you've even opened because your director yeah. becomes the youngest Black director to have directed on Broadway at 27? Yep. As, as you do. Incredible. We make a good team, you know, and I trust, which is why
2: I'm not in the room right now. is because I mm. trust. I'm like, y'all gonna do what you do and then I'm gonna come in and give my little, you yeah, know, thoughts, yeah, yeah. but... It's just like the play, our collaboration has been built on trust and family. Mm. And we pour that into the show and into the company. And I think they will exude that when people see the show.
1: Mm. Fantastic. And this Broadway production is just the beginning, I'm sure. And that's
2: the exciting part for me too, is that Broadway is just a large commercial to make it go regional and make it go international and allow people all around the world to experience the family of Chicken and Biscuits. Like that's really the win for me. Broadway is awesome. I'm not belittling it, but I also think it's just an opportunity to throw the net wider and Mm. for people in Kansas and in Detroit and in Chicago and in Connecticut to be able to perform this play and to give Black folks specifically more juicy and fun roles in the canon of what theatre does.
0: More from the Writer's Toolkit after these messages.
2: Hey there, Mark Sanderson here, author of A Screenwriter's Journey to Success, with my script tip for today. You know, even if you don't agree with a note, listen. There's a good reason behind the note. It might not be clear now, and they might not fully explain themselves, but always be curious and collaborative. Never combative when it comes to notes.
0: Welcome back to the Writer's Toolkit Podcast.
1: Okay, let's talk about Bow. Wow. So for anyone who hasn't had the world premiere recording on a loop like I have for the last forever, can you tell us a little bit about the show?
2: It is a actor-musician piece, um, seven actor-musicians and a drummer. And The Evening is their, Bow the band, um, their debut of their second album. Um, Ace Baker is the leader of the band. And The Evening is this beautiful hybrid of like stand-up, Concert, musical, rock out, heartfelt storytelling. Um, so everybody in the band plays a memory or facet of his life as he tells his story and how when he went home to bury his mother, he found his mm. journal for middle school and the entries inspired songs. And so okay. as he's going through the album that evening, we're actually seeing him grow up from 12 year old ace to 27 year old ace. And okay. the mandolin and guitar player plays his bully and the bassist plays his stepfather. And yeah. um, you see all these people emerge. You see his story emerge as you receive the music of the album. And so it's it's a really cool and special yeah. project.
1: You've said previously in another interview, it was very much the shape and form that came to you first. And I love the idea of this ensemble of musicians who have the fluidity to kind of break from song and move into kind of, you know, scene work and dialogue. Did you very much so- see it that way? First of all, you, you in your head, you had this concept of this shape and form of the piece.
2: After seeing once I was at like the first preview of once. Cause at the time I was pretty close with Steve Kazee, who played guy. Right. And yeah. I was like, Oh, this is magical. These people are unicorns. They play things, they sing, they act, they dance. I could never do this, but I want to write this. I remember feeling that. And so Bo was an exercise. It was the first time I wrote book. And, Mm -hmm. you know, with Ethan, I was sort of pitching this project. I was like, I want us to do an actor musician thing. Like, how can we do something? And I went again, being inspired from real life. My friend Harley J, who I did rent with, he was my mark on that tour. Okay. Was doing a concert at Rockwood Music Hall in the Lower East Side. And I believe it was a Sunday night, maybe. And I went and saw him and it was him and his wife and a pianist just doing his set. And at one yep. point he stopped and told a story of his grandfather, this man who um he lived with during the summers for three weeks at a time in the sticks of Salt Lake City. And this man would like hotwire a radio to a motorcycle so that they could have music. And he just talked about him in such a loving way. Uh. I was like... Wow, I feel like I just fell in love with your grandfather, yeah, and then he played a song, right? right? And I was like, oh, there's a way mm, you framed this thing, yeah you you meet this performer who started this band in honor of his grandfather, Bo, yeah, and that's rich mm. that this guy gave him music in the way that, like Harley's grandfather gave him all these experiences, and so that was the impetus of the idea and Again, when I listened to the page, it sort of wrote itself. I knew he would have a best friend. I didn't know he was going to be queer, but that came about. Um, yeah. And then the lineage of queerness in the family. And I, I, I didn't know, but I knew I wanted to write something. And that felt like a juicy mm-hmm. world
1: to find. And we found it. I love it. I love it. And it's so the musical arrangements of vocals, it's such a gorgeous sound that you've created. And, you know, this totally original kind of folk influenced pop score. I guess if I had to liken it to other shows, I would say it's a kind of beautiful cross between once um, bright star maybe with a little bit of come from away sprinkled in there. Uh, is that a fair sell? We call it James Brown meets
2: James Taylor. Mm. So it has that soul that you would get from a Luther or a Stevie in yep, the vocal, yep. but the folk you would get from um, Hollow Notes or, you know, Carol King, right? right? Um, and that's with purpose because that's sort of my gospel upbringing on top of music. I, you know, pop and, and folk music that I also love. Mm. But I, something tells me in the next couple of years, you'll be able to see it live.
1: Mm, well, I very much hope so. It's a magical piece, Douglas, and I very much look forward to following its journey. Now, Bow and Chicken and Biscuits were both developed at the Director's Company. We touched briefly earlier on your work as founder of the Next Wave Initiative. Could you talk a little more about that?
2: During the pandemic, there were a lot of arguments on social media about the state of the American theatre when it came mm. to racism, um, inequity, etc. And at the time, I was like, I can sit here and argue with the adults or I can invest in the children. And I remember right. being in college and seeing, you know, I when I arrived at school, I didn't come from a theater program. I did one musical my senior year in high school. I played Tony in West Side Story and I riffed way too much. It was amazing. Um, <laughs> but I didn't have show choir and dance and voice lessons and piano lessons and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I was sort of a fish out of water when I got to college, but I fell in love with the art form. And I feel like there's a lot of young Black artists who are training but are not seen. They're not right. acknowledged for their greatness, potentially ever. And so, you know, going back to the ancestors who have been great, um, Hattie McDaniel, Alvin Ailey, Spike Lee, and Lorraine Hansberry and going i'm going to honor your legacy by paying it forward to the next generation Mm. right the next wave of talent and letting them know that they can walk in your footsteps and that they are graduating college with some financial support and already an award to say you should pay attention to this artist wow and we were able to raise over twenty five thousand dollars um during the pandemic towards this effort and uh I'm really excited about the legacy it's gonna leave. Yeah. And that, like, one of the finalists is in the new Billy Porter film, you know, that these Amazing. kids are really special. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, They just have to be celebrated.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's so wonderful. And I'm going to read a, a little quote back that I saw in another interview where you said, playwriting feels more community driven than acting for me. Acting feels like I'm serving myself. Every time I write a new project, I'm providing jobs for what you call, you know, unicorns, underrepresented stories and artists. And that's so, so beautiful. And that just, you know, speaks perfectly to what you're doing there with the next wave initiative.
2: Yeah. I I just think theater specifically is so kind of obsessed with itself and its people. And what I love about what Jonathan Larson did with rent and having gone through the show at 19 years old, he found new talent. He was on the lookout for new talent and birthed Daphne Rubin Vega and Tay Diggs and Adam Pascal. He started those careers with his work. And so I'm hoping that theater gets back to a place where it aims to do that It aims to find the new and allow the new in instead of regurgitating the old. And I feel like if I have any platform, I'm going to continue to look for the unicorns, you know, to, to take people who are phenomenal and put them in places where they can thrive, you know. Uh, I think that's what we should try to do.
1: I mean, that's why it's so important to see, you know, people like yourself, you know, making waves in Broadway and this kind of next generation of gatekeepers. It feels it's encouraging, right? It's like it's an invite to the table without without barriers.
2: Yeah. And I think I think writing for me is an opportunity to pull people forward and acting. I feel like you can't really do as much because you're worried about your own survival. Mm. Mm. And I uh. understandably so. but you know for me i just i love writing a joke that yeah eventually an actor will bring to life right yeah. and then i also don't have to be in the room all the time i can yeah. write a thing and then move on to the next thing but all these characters become legacy you know yeah and uh and then it's original work for folks of color and and black yep. folks to yep. have forever in the way that august wilson created his 10 play cycle so
1: Now, Douglas, you said of your children's musical, Polka Dots, the cool kids musical, that being a cool kid can be as easy as keeping an open mind. Could you talk a little about the inspiration behind the show?
2: Funny story. I had the idea for Polka Dots in 2014 fall. Yep. It was inspired by a YouTube interview I found with Felicia Rashad talking about growing up in the Jim Crow South and being a little black girl who had a curiosity for a white only water fountain. That became Lily Polka right. Dot. Who has curiosity for the square sprinkler, and she's the only polka dot of her kind, right? Yeah, so it's a very yeah. simple story that I then made magical, um, yeah, with the theater. And I pitched mm. it to some people. They were like, "That's stupid. That sounds stupid." And I was like, "Okay." And so I put it on a shelf. And yeah. then I call them mosquito bites when these ideas keep coming and nagging at you, and they will not yeah. go away. Twenty fifteen, I was like, "Ah, oh, there's something about this polka dots thing and shapes and diversity and." you know, the innocence of a child being able to recognize that water is the same and that racism mm. cannot divide mm. nature. Right. Right. And so how, how do we impart that knowledge to a generation of kids who really need it, who don't know the hate that they're being taught? You know, and I think, again, responsibility yeah. falls on the adults. And so um, it felt like an opportunity mm. You know it's also pulled from African American history, the Little Rock Nine and Ruby Bridges, and the strength of that, and so I think always in some way pulling from the ancestors that have given strength for me personally, I have Tony Morrison, Cicely Tyson, and James Baldwin above my writing desk, yes, to just go you can right. do it like yes. you, they did it, yes, you can do it, yeah, and so I love that. I wrote a seven page manifesto of what the world of polka dots could be. The trees looked more like pineapple branches. I had all these things, you know, and I handed it over to Melvin Tunstall III, who was the swing on Beautiful. And I had seen his show bloom um, the November before and was blown away by the wit of his book. And I said, I think you should write the book for this. And I had just met this awesome Mm. composer, Greg Borofsky from South Africa. And we had one reading. And it took off. I sometimes think musicals and plays, like ideas wise, they get too big. And so it's harder. Mm. I call it the music stand test. Can you move people to tears at a music stand? Because if you can do that, the rest is history. And I think everything I write is at at a music stand test. Because that's just, I know producibility. You know, I have a show that's a cast of four, five, six, seven, and eight because I know the smaller the show the most likely it's going to be produced. Yeah. We're now talking business but I also carry
1: that brain as well is like Yeah yeah you have to you have to write with that in your head.
2: Yeah, you you have to know what you're getting into, you know? And so, yeah, I think the music stand test became evident during Polka Dots. And there was an interview, we had two readings. This is August of 2015. And a lot of the lead producers of Beautiful came to see it. Like there was so much love in the room. And we got an offer quickly thereafter to do a bow at the Iverington Playhouse. And Carnegie Mellon University also did a one night production in this um, kaleidoscope festival they had. At this point, we're over 70 productions worldwide. It's wow. one. Awards wow. in South Africa. It's played Guam wow. College of Guam <laughs> did it twice. University of Guam. Shout out to Guam. Like what? Wow. So it's beyond That's incredible.
1: Us. Yeah, it shows the reach, though, right? Yeah, it's beyond us. Children of all backgrounds, you know, coming to watch this, you know, whether they're feeling different because of you know race, disability, gender, sexuality, whatever, um sitting down to watch a show with these messages is just beautiful.
2: During one of the performances, there was during the finale in the aisles, there was this three-year-old kid dancing in silhouette because the lights were hitting us, right? Dancing, bopping. And I went, oh my God, mm. she cannot possibly understand what's being right. said right now, but right. she understand there's joy. That's our job. Yeah, Joy. If we yeah. can give that kid joy every time. That's all I want to do for the rest of my life. And that was a turning point, I think, in my writing career because mm. on stage during closing, I broke down. I cried, like I cried openly in front of strangers because I was like, this is crazy because it was a different version of power in the theater. I had only felt it as an actor. But there's a power with the pen Mm. if we use it with intention. If we use it with intention, there's a power in the pen. Gosh,
1: yeah, absolutely. And how wonderful to be be touching lives like this, young lives. That's going to be just one of many anecdotes the more you share this story with audiences.
2: Yeah. Uh, During one of our opening weekends of Polka Dots at Irvington, there was a young Black girl who came up to our lead and said, I feel like a Polka Dot. She was the only Black girl in her class. So we're speaking to them that's who we're speaking to. And I think if we put ourselves aside, this is where I like get so over the politics of Broadway and the fame. and It's like theater is actually a tool to reach Mm -hmm. in the same way that like religion or churches. I think I feel like you can use our stories to empower and to uplift. And so I feel like when I'm writing kids material specifically, I'm speaking to them in the case of Boa, we're speaking to queer kids who are contemplating their lives. Yeah. Um, that you can come out on the other side, right. Um, with chicken and biscuits, we're speaking to black families to say, it's okay to go through tough things, but you can heal. You just have to talk about some Mm, stuff and mm, laugh about it. It might get ugly, but you're going to come out. Right. So I think I'm always speaking to someone and using myself as the vessel for the words.
1: Oh, yeah. Important words, important work, and what a fantastic legacy, Douglas.
2: Yeah, it, for me, it's about legacy. I realized, you know, coming to terms with death and the reality that we're not all here to stay, which is a lyric mm. in Bo. Um, he said, you know, we didn't come on this earth to stay, we're just passing through to do it all your way. You never know when it's bound to be your last day, so leave it all in the hay. Yeah. Right? I I'm actually dealing with my fears by writing lyrics about my Mm. hopes and so i think about legacy and how when i am gone people can listen to these musicals and these lyrics and watch these plays and feel the spirit of who i am in them
1: Mm, absolutely and that is
2: the most powerful thing an artist can have yeah that's what you know visual art is paintings right you're watching right right van gogh you're looking
1: through the eyes of into his work his soul yeah through
2: his art and that is why i think i've become so passionate about mm. writing is yeah. because it feels like an opportunity to inspire but also to leave a legacy
1: okay final scene just a few questions to close with while the credits roll Awesome. Can you pinpoint a single film, TV show, or book which has had a profound impact on your desire to be a writer and why?
2: Okay, what's interesting is I was watching a lot of This Is Us when I started Bo, which actually informed uh, some of the device because at one point during Bo, you are watching five actors interact, but they're in three different time periods. And that was because... I saw how This Is Us played with time. And I was like, ooh, how do I bring that to the stage, yeah. right? You don't yeah. have to switch, you know, the scene or set dressing to go to a place. You can do that with language in a spotlight. And so yes. that show really broke my mind open about how we tell our stories. Um, they don't yeah. have to be in order necessarily. Um, which I thought was fascinating. So I would say This Is Us was yeah. highly influential to my writing.
1: Okay, I love that. Now stick with me on this one. It's a convoluted question, but I was lucky enough to see Chicken and Biscuit star Michael Ury, um, who incidentally is from Plano, Texas, where I used to live for a while. I saw him in Buyer and Seller at the Menier Chocolate Factory in London. Buyer and Seller, for anyone who doesn't know, is about a gay guy who works in a sort of basement mall inside Barbara Streisand's house. With Douglas, <laughs> if you could work in the basement mall of anybody living dead who would it be
2: jennifer lewis jennifer lewis, jennifer lewis i love that i love that she is a riot <laughs> she's so funny and so herself and owns everything i would say jennifer lewis or viola ah. black women just inspired me i think they are the miracle of the world right. that's why i write for them mostly because i'm like
1: y'all don't get you're just mm. doing this mm. world and that's chicken and biscuits right that's
2: that's what you've put right there on the stage that's chicken and biscuits that's polka dots right mm, like inspired mm. from a little black girl like yeah, that yeah, yeah. yeah there's so much strength to be written from the black experience and specifically yeah. the black woman experience
1: mm. i have to ask you chicken and biscuits or chicken and waffles biscuits i don't really like waffle
2: waffles get soggy And people call the play chicken and waffles and I want to slap them. It's called chicken and biz. Oh, they've called the play that? Yeah. People are like, congratulations on chicken and waffles. I was like, what's that? (laughs) That's not the name of the play I came up with, but okay.
1: I love that. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Before I let you go, can you leave us with your top tip for maintaining a healthy writing practice? Rest,
2: study, trust,
1: go for it. Love that. Awesome. Brilliant. Douglas, thank you so much for your time. It's been so nice to sit down and chat with you. Thank you for having me. And um, hopefully we can do this in person sometime in New York. We can sit down and grab a coffee.
2: Yes. Let me know. Just keep in touch. Thanks, Douglas. Take care. Cheers then. Be
1: well. How amazing was that, to sit down and chat with Douglas just literally weeks before his big Broadway opening and, of course, so lovely to see New York open for business again. Chicken and Biscuits, starring Norm Lewis and Michael Urie, is playing at Circle in the Square Theatre until January 2nd. Of course, in the meantime, you can bask in the gorgeous sound that is Bo, the world premiere recording, wherever you get your music. I promise you'll fall in love with it. I can't promise it won't get stuck in your head.
0: Next time on the Writer's Toolkit Podcast.
1: From China Doll to Medea Undone, Marjorie Chan explains how she juggles a prolific writing career with artistic leadership at Toronto's Theatre Passamurai.
2: I think it comes to the urgency of the stories I want to tell. You have to start something because the characters
0: won't shut up and they just happen to be going. You're like, well, wherever I am, I'll just get this down because they're talking.
1: (laughs) Please follow me on Twitter and Instagram. You'll find me at Paul paulkalbergi. You'll also find links for anything mentioned in this episode in the show notes below. Until next time, stay inspired.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Writer's Toolkit podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to leave a review and share the link with your friends. This podcast is fueled by coffee. If you'd like to support the show, you'll find the Buy Me A Coffee link in the show notes.